The Religious Sense by Luigi Gisan. Chapter 6 Unreasonable Positions Before the Ultimate Question Emptying the Question. Premise I would now like to list, even if in a summary fashion, what I would call unreasonable positions which individuals assume before the questions which constitute the religious sense. They also assume these positions in answering these questions. Now, why do we use the word unreasonable? Because an unreasonable position is one which claims to explain a phenomenon, but does so in a way which does not consider adequately all of the factors. You simply cannot resolve a question while forgetting or denying some of the factors in play. We generalize upon this observation and affirm that a position is erroneous whenever it neglects or negates any aspect in order to follow the dictates of its own logic. I also call these attitudes inhuman precisely because they are unreasonable. Let me list six of these positions. And this is not inspired by the pure love of making lists, but because in one way or another, these positions are either temptations or actual attitudes all of us live. Nihil humani a me alienum puto. I do not hold that something which has befallen another person cannot befall me. Anyway, these stances define what is statistically, at least in practice, the attitude of most people. The theoretical denial of the question. First of all, the position, which I call the theoretical denial of the questions, defines these great questions as senseless. According to this stance, sentences which express such questions are only grammatically correct. Otherwise, they don't make sense. They are like saying, look here, a donkey with wings with a jaguar in place of its right feet, a ballerina from the opera instead of ears, etc. You can multiply the images as far as your fantasy wishes, but these sentences also possess another, even more serious defect. They do not even constitute an image. They are pure words, merely sounds. I will now recall for you the very moment when I discovered this position as a systematic attitude. I was giving a test in religion for my third year students at the high school where I was teaching and, while the students were writing, I was walking up and down between the aisles. Having returned to the front row of desks, I picked up from one of the students the first book that caught my eye. It was one of his textbooks, Compendium of the History of Italian Literature by Natalino Sepeno. I began thumbing through it to pass the time, and my eye simply happened to fall upon a page where the author described the life of Leopardi. At this point, I began to read with interest, but after half a minute I exclaimed, Class, stop the exam. Now you, with all of your presumptions, with all of your desire for autonomy, you read these things and accept them without question? as if you were just drinking a glass of water? Indeed, here is the text. The questions into which one condenses the confused, 
indiscriminate and reflective callow capriciousness of adolescence, their primitive and undeveloped philosophy. That is, what is life? What is the use of it? What is the purpose of the universe? And why is there pain? Those questions from which the true adult philosopher distances himself, seeing them as absurd and lacking in any authentic speculative value, and of such a nature that they bring no answer or any possibility of development, precisely these become Leopardi's obsession, the exclusive content of his philosophy. Ah, I understand, I said to my students. Homer, Sophocles, Virgil, Dante, Dostoevsky, Beethoven would also be adolescents, because all of their art is driven by these questions, cries out to these needs which, as Thomas Mann used to say, give burning immediacy to all we say and significance to all our striving. I am happy to stand in the company of these men, because a man who tosses out these questions is not human. In his Chronicles of Contemporary Philosophy, Eugenio Garin recommends that thought be without flights into impossible, far out things, because the human being is the center and master of the world, as far as he exercises this unbound mastery in a concrete way. What kind of master of the world is he who, as the fruit of so much of his own work, generates the well-founded terror that he might destroy all of his already miserable house, the threshing floor, whereon fierce deeds are done. This unbound mastery means that you must think according to the mentality of the powers that be. Otherwise, you will be shunned from society and, if possible, sent off to a madhouse, as in Russia. Now, why are these far-out things so impossible? Because Master Garin says so? If nature has placed within me an impulse even more powerful than a rocket, a drive so deeply rooted that it actually constitutes my very self, then why must the answer to the questions generated by this impulse represent a goal so impossible that it is useless even to speak of it? Analogously, John Dewey, one of the men most responsible for the pedagogy which has already formed several generations in the United States and which has arrived in Italy, after 30 years, like a rebounding wave, affirms the following. To abandon the pursuit of reality and the search for absolute and immutable value can seem like a sacrifice. But this renunciation is the condition of entering upon a vocation of greater vitality. The search for values to be secured and shared by all, because buttressed in the foundations of social life, is a quest in which philosophy would have no rivals but collaborators among men and women of goodwill. To abandon the pursuit of reality to relinquish its absolute and immutable value is too much of a sacrifice to ask of a person and could lead to suicide. According to such thinking, we ought, in fact, to forsake something towards which nature pushes us. 
And this is irrational and inhuman. It is an inadequate position. Dewey counsels us to abandon these impossible things in order to join together and build a social life. However, this loses sight of the fact that unity among people, and thus the very possibility of a truly constructive collaboration, requires a factor which transcends the human person. And without this, we could end up thrown together in a provisory, absolutely equivocal way, because we could never be certain of anything at all. Even the love of a man and a woman is based on a deep bond which transcends the impulse of youth. This love is welded together by something else, which objectifies itself in the form of a baby, a child, or, to express it more generically, a task. And, when there is this child, then what is this task? It is either consciously or obscurely, nebulously, the destiny of the child, his journey as a human person. It is this sense that brings forth and dictates the attitude of real emotion in the parents, a firm commitment, a loving feeling in all of its simplicity and totality. Without this something else which exceeds the relationship, the relationship would not last. A relationship needs a reason. And the true reason for a relationship must tie it to the whole. The Voluntaristic Substitution of Questions If you remove the stimulating energy of the elementary experience, that goad that drives me on, if you take away the dynamic energy which those questions determine, the motion that they give our humanity, if you empty the content of those questions, which constitute precisely the essential mechanism, the motor of our personality. If you do this, then where do we find the energy to act? This energy becomes limited to a self-affirmation. Now, as the instrument of our self-affirmation is the will, or our voluntary force, it would be simply a voluntaristic energy or affirmation. It can have as its starting point, I, a taste for personal praxis, I-I, a utopian sentiment, or I-I-I, a social project. I have not listed these three categories merely by way of example. They are three fundamental forms of this position, and I can illustrate them. I, personal praxis. Here is a poem by Yevtushenko. There are many who do not love me. They heap blame on me, and they hurl lightning arrows and thunder at me. In a somber and piercing way, they laugh at my song, and I can feel their perfidious gaze upon me. All of this gives me pleasure. I am proud that these cannot manage to overcome me, to gain anything. With contemptuous arrogance, I watch their brawls. With the joy of stone, I deliberately prod them. But, known so well to all, I go about at times with difficulty, perplexed, tormented, on the point of falling. Without a false smile, I realize with anguish that I am conceited, that I am shrewd. In the depths of my soul, I know that I am another, 
but then why they envy me I will never understand. I walk silently in the snowy street, and I ardently wish to be conceited. Beyond this grave intuition about solitude, his outlook on life is one of voluntaristic praxis. I.I. Utopianism. Instead, this voluntaristic energy is not attracted by any end recognized as an objective. Rather, it almost blindly provides the goal and the end itself. Bertrand Russell, the prophet of radical culture, writes while the century is still only beginning. The life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, towards a goal that few can hope to reach, and where none may tarry long. One by one, as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Very brief is the time in which we can help them, in which their happiness or misery is decided. Be it ours to shed sunshine on their path, to lighten their sorrows by the balm of sympathy, to give them the pure joy of a never-tiring affection, to strengthen failing courage, to instill faith in hours of despair. What faith? Faith in what? He is like someone who flexes his muscles, as children do when they are showing off, in order to confront time with an ideal sentiment produced by his own effort. His action is a useless hardening of the muscles of the will. He is like a sail which, although swelled by the wind, remains without port. Here is another typical Russell quotation, taken from Mysticism and Logic. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man, condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness, it remains only to cherish. Ere yet the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day, disdaining the coward terrors of the slave of fate, to worship at the shrine that his own hands have built, undismayed by the empire of chance, to preserve a mind free from the wanton tyranny that rules his outward life, proudly defiant of the irresistible forces that tolerate, for a moment, his knowledge and his condemnation, to sustain alone a weary but unyielding atlas, the world that his own ideals have fashioned, despite the trampling march of unconscious power. This passage is irrational because, in order to write it, he had to recoil from and suffocate the needs which inspired him to write it in the first place. Such accusations mean that something objective within cries out and begs for more from the situation. You cannot respond to this cry with an invitation which offers no endpoint, an invitation where, a priori, any kind of harbor is denied. 
I-I-I, the social project. Strain your muscles, puff out your cheeks. We shall realize the project of a different society. A project made up by whom? By me, Marx would say. By us, others would say. This voluntaristic emphasis forgets the most acute and objective content, the personal one, which is the only place where even a social interest can originate. This position is a reduction tending towards abstraction, an impotent forgetfulness. It is not a coincidence that the philosophy produced in the USSR was almost exclusively devoted to ethics, a completely invasive moralism. The Practical Denial of the Questions while the first attitude affirms that the questions make no sense, that they are without any intelligible meaning, this one, however, is purely existential, a concept which is lived, because these questions are painful, wrenching. The individual structures his life, so they quite simply do not surface. The first manifestation of this attitude is well known by all, even us. Don't think about it. This is illustrated in Shakespeare's Henry IV, when Dora says to Falstaff, Thou whore son, little tidy Bartholomew, boar pig, when wilt thou leave fighting o' days, and foining o' nights, and begin to patch up thine old body for heaven? Peace, good doll, speak not like a death's head. Do not bid me remember mine end. Henry IV, Act Two, Scene Four. For most people, this is supreme wisdom. But this same phenomenon assumes a different and surprising shape. For example, in Casimir's Brandes, The Defense of Granada, the society creates diversions in order to obscure the great interest, which is the essential question the question of meaning, and it is unable to succeed, so life in society is supplanted by alcohol, or today, by drugs. In the streets of our city, the crowd moves along the widened sidewalks under buildings taller than they have ever been. In a deaf and sorrowful disquietude, it seeks out the flavor of the present day. Thirsty for strong excitations, it turns to the cinema, the stadiums, the taverns. The crowd is unsatisfied by the social motivation for existence, even though it ought to recognize the logic pointed out every day with a thousand arguments. Generally, these arguments are convincing. The crowd is not made up of madmen. It has understood the importance of work in life. It takes seriously organized effort. It feels respect for material energy, the source of future successes. All this, however, does not disperse its uneasiness. The principles and the goals do not appease its yearnings. Tormented by a confused desire, longing to forget the program for its realization, the crowd wants to discover the flavor of life, which allows it to taste the pleasure of the space of existence. The crowd is not exacting in all of this. It takes that which is given it. Alcohol contains the most secure guarantee 
of reconciling oneself with the present. A half-liter bottle contains the desired percentage of irrational. In Shakespeare's Tempest, at a certain point, Antonio states, The latter end of his commonwealth forgets the beginning. Act 2, scene 1, line 154. Gonzalo continues to dream about a just society which might be built. This could be an ultimate goal. Where is the error of today's society? It forgets the beginning which is in the conscience of human beings who cry out these ultimate questions. And these questions penetrate our relationships with our children, friends, strangers. They permeate our work and daily lives, the way we speak. What a beautiful day it is, and our confrontation with social problems. In fact, individuals are attracted to the social question, not because of its internal logic, but precisely due to a passion or thirst for justice, which will never find complete and exhaustive measures or yardsticks, ever. In the initial phases of the Beat Generation, one of the most well-known slogans was this, Gotta go, gotta go, don't know where, but we gotta go. Doing in order not to feel, not to deepen an otherwise obvious restlessness. Such a skeptical tone underlies this attitude which supports most people's irresponsibility because skepticism always coincides with the flight from an involvement with a total reality in all of its integral dimensions. An apocryphal book of the Bible, the fourth chapter of Ezra, asks, What good is it that there is the promise of undying hope if we are tossed here into unhappiness? Therefore, one could conclude, let us relinquish those ultimate questions and get busy with being happy here. But the most noble standpoint, the one most well-formed and philosophically motivated, and the only dignified alternative to an involvement proper to a sincerely religious life, that is to say, a life truly committed to the essential questions, is the stoic ideal of perfect emotional imperturbability. John Falstaff devoted himself to swordplay, others to alcohol or drugs, or even the drug of skepticism. But there remains a position much more complex and cunning, and it sounds like this. It is impossible to answer these questions. Therefore, we must anesthetize ourselves. Here, the dignified and sage person has become the master of himself and constructs, imagines, and realizes a totally self-proclaimed and rational equilibrium. And come what may, this equilibrium renders him firm and fearless. No matter what philosophy sustains the conception of the person, as long as it is irreligious, this will be its supreme ideal. In this poem by Yevtushenko, we can see, above all, an example of this imperturbability as it is practically lived and aesthetically felt. In overcrowded trams, all packed in together, swaying together, together we stagger, all made equal by an equal weariness. 
From time to time, we are swallowed by the subway, and then the subway spits us forth again from its smoking mouth. Through unknown streets, between white eddies, we ride, men beside men. The breath of each of us mingles. Our footprints are changed and confused. From our pockets, we pull our tobacco. We whine some latest song, knocking each other with our elbows. We say, excuse me, or we say nothing. The snow strikes tranquil faces. We exchange mean, deaf words. It is just us, all of us, us here. We are all together, what abroad they call Moscow. We who here go about with our bags under our arms, with our parcels and bundles, it is us who launch spaceships to the heavens and perplex hearts and brains. Each one on his own, through his own sadovie, lebietsie, trumie, on his own schedule, without knowing each other, we, brushing against each other, on we go. Impermeability, total aridity. But this is the ideal of so much contemporary literature. I would like to invite you to read the ending of A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. Frederick Henry overcomes the pain of the death of Catherine by turning his back and walking off. This is the rational man, the master of himself. In the column, Italy asks, in the weekly news magazine, Epoca, Augusto Guerriero reprinted the following request of one of his readers. I turn to you as the only one who can help me. In 1941, at only 17 years of age, I took seriously a fascist slogan calling us to arms and left my house and my studies, signing up for the M Battalion. I fought in Greece against the partisans. I was wounded, then captured by the Germans and, as a prisoner, removed to Germany. During my imprisonment, I contracted tuberculosis. Returning from prison, I hid my illness from everyone, even my family, and this because, in the mean, common mentality, someone sick with TB, even though it is not contagious, as it was in my case, is a person to be avoided, to pity, and to approach only if forced, and then only by taking a thousand precautions. And I wanted none of that. I knew I was not dangerous and wanted to live like all other men, together with all other men. I took up my studies again, got a degree, and found some work. I have lived thoughtlessly for years, forgetting that I had ever been ill. Now, however, this sickness is progressing, and I feel that I am dragging myself toward the end. From day to day, I distract myself seeking to live intensely. But at night, I can't get to sleep, and the thought that in a little while I will no longer exist makes me break out in a cold sweat. Every so often, I think I'll go crazy. If I had faith, I would be able to take refuge in that. I would find the necessary resignation. But, unfortunately, I lost my faith a long time ago, and the many 
perhaps too many books that I've read that made me lose it haven't given me in exchange that coldness, that tranquility that permits others to face this step serenely. I've ended up stripped and disarmed once and for all. And this is why I turn to you. I admire your serenity, which is transparent in all of your writings, and I envy you this serenity. I am sure that a letter of yours would be a great relief for me and would make me stronger. I ask you please to help me. Guerrero replied, But tell me, what can I do for you? Write you a letter? And what good would writing you a letter do? I only write about politics, and what use would it be to write to you about politics? You need for someone to talk to you about other things, and I never write about those things. In fact, I never think about them, and it is precisely not to think about them that I write about politics and about other things that, in the end, don't mean a thing to me. In this way, I manage to forget myself and my misery. This is the problem to find a way to forget ourselves and our own misery. It is not wise to affirm, by day I distract myself, seeking to live intensely, for any advice which counsels us to forget cannot be wise. Does trying to forget assure that one lives intensely, like a man, reasonably? These positions do not do us justice. This ideal of imperturbability, even when reached through an implacable mastery of the self, besides being inadequate and illusory due to the fact that it does not last, is also at the mercy of chance. Yes, you can train yourself to be imperturbable and unassailable, but to the extent that you are not arid, are intensely human, Sooner or later, your construction, perhaps the fruit of an ascetic work of many years, a work of relentless philosophic reflection and presumption, will still need only a puff of wind to make it crumble. One of the youthful short stories of Thomas Mann vividly demonstrated this to me. The great genius truly captures the dominant culture, but... It is impossible for him not to let the remaining inquietude in and the ultimate failure of this culture seep through to the surface. The title of that story was Little Herr Fredman. The protagonist was the fourth son of a rich and noble family in a certain German city. An accident had befallen him shortly after birth and had left him crippled. With a protruding chest, and a hunched back, his head sunken in. His body was seriously deformed. Consequently, he developed an extraordinary self-defense mechanism. This individual instinctively and unconsciously applied all of his intelligence and force of will to construct a modus vivendi, a way of life undisturbed by instinct, attractions, and proposals. He understood by sheer intuition that he could not permit himself what would be allowed other men. Thus he learned to live under strict limitations. He grew up in this monotonous way, with one kind of order, total equilibrium. 
The people of the city admired him because they understood that he was a man who controlled himself with intelligence, although they did not love him. There was, however, just one single hobby to which he was dedicated. This was, so to speak, the theater. Symbolically, he was never an actor in life, but a spectator. The ideal of this position of imperturbability, in fact, is to live as much as possible as a spectator of the equivocal and dangerous fervor of life on the stage. But an absolutely unforeseeable and out-of-place experience destroyed this perfect order. He fell in love, and this equilibrium was destroyed in a few days, indeed in a mere moment. And all of the energy which had gone into this self-control, all of the intelligence and the force with which it had been constructed, all this collapsed with a single blow and reduced him to the cold act of suicide. The answer to the questions of life does not lie in this dominion, this self-control. The crickets, which fall quiet for an instant at the splash of little Herr Friedman as he drowns himself, bring to mind the indifference of the silvery donkey in Josu Carducci's Before St. Guido, A.J. Cronin's The Stars Look Down, or Giovanni Pascoli's poem The Book. The crickets, the stars, the ass, all symbolize nature, arid and insensitive nature, which abandons man in complete solitude when man allows himself to fall away from the impulse toward mystery, toward which the constitutive questions of his heart authoritatively drive him. And the hushed laughter of people along the street betrays an estrangement from and an imperviousness to the tragic thirst for love and happiness in the heart of little Herr Friedman, exactly like the unconscious indifference of the crickets.